So I love cycles. Like I said, I'm kind of working on this big thesis, pulling a few different cycles. And, and I love them because you can kind of use this historical reference to kind of maybe help predict the future a little bit. You know, Mark Twain says it doesn't repeat, but it rhymes. That's a big value prop of Bitcoin is that there's a limited 21 million supply. Now, there had to be a certain way to issue those coins until we reached that mark. And what Satoshi uh, came up with was an idea where every four years, the number of newly issued coins per block, every 10 minute approximate block, is reduced by half. What we're seeing across all markets, and, and, I, and it's really the base of economics, is people rushing to scarce assets. You could almost look at this kind of like Ray Dalio's short and long-term debt cycle theory, where he's got these oscillating waves of short-term debt cycles, and you've got the long-term one. I talk so much about um, how much, how many dollars have been created by the Fed, uh, but Bitcoin's a, a global reserve asset, and so really you need to look at the total amount of global dollars. But then COVID hit, and that's like a, a mega, mega bearish event. But that bearish event brings in focus why Bitcoin is valuable. You don't have to trust your government. You don't have to trust banks. It seemed to kind of actually respond like gold did, um, has done. If we look at gold compared to stocks in like the 2008 crash, um, it, it takes an initial dip, but then immediately rebounds really quickly. A lot of folks think, oh, it's a store value asset. It's a uh, risk off asset. It must perfectly be like have a perfect, <laughs> right. perfect inverse correlation with the markets. Well, nothing perfectly does that. It, there's, there's an ebb and flow to how prices move relative to other asset prices. What happened in gold and Bitcoin on March 12th, 2020, that was a liquidity crunch. Uh, investors across the world were getting margin called because a lot of the institutional folks go leverage to juice the returns. They were getting margin called and they were selling anything they could, even safe haven store value assets, assets like gold and Bitcoin. Hey, everyone. Welcome to another episode of the Market Disruptor Show. And today I am joined by Dan Held uh, for a second time. He's the Director of Growth Marketing at Kraken. Um, he's really good at, at marketing, but he's also really good at forecasting or talking about where some of these kind of trends that are growing are going. And so um, he's written a bunch of papers. If you haven't seen him, you definitely should. We'll link to the latest one down below. But Dan, thanks so much for joining. Mark, thanks for having me. Uh, excited to jam on a couple different topics today. Yeah, awesome. So um, I know you're the director of growth marketing at Kraken, but you've also been involved in a lot of other roles inside kind of the Bitcoin space as well. Um, maybe just give us a little bit of background on like, you know, what you've been working on, like how long you've been doing this kind of a thing. Sure. Yeah. So I've been in the crypto space eight years, which kind of makes me a dinosaur. Yeah. <laughs> I'm, 30, I'm 33 years old and I've got gray hairs. I don't know if you can see it on my <laughs> webcam. I've got some gray hairs coming in. Um, I sort of stumbled and bubbled my way into tech. I would use this as a word of encouragement for folks who want to get into tech. It's definitely possible. Um, I was formerly, I worked at a small investment firm. I built a mobile app with my buddy. It was an app that was called ZeroBlock, had real-time market data, news feeds, kind of like a Blockfolio equivalent in terms of functionality and popularity back in 2013. We got bought by blockchain.com uh, from there. Uh, tried out different hats of product marketing, growth marketing, and um, product across a couple of different crypto companies. I worked at Uber on writer growth and growth marketing team. So over at HQ, uh, from there came back to uh, came back to Bitcoin and crypto. Co-founded a company. We got bought by Kraken. At Kraken, I stood up the growth marketing team, and uh, that's how I'm here today. But yeah, my my marketing background has been kind of a fun mix of working in um, different crypto companies, working at companies like Uber. And then also my personal brand. So it's, it's been pretty exciting. Yeah. And yeah, you've, you've been working on your personal brand, doing a good job with that. I've, I've been impressed and I'm a marketing guy as well. So that's cool. Um, so someone that's been around for this long, I mean, you've, you've seen a lot, right? Uh, it doesn't sound that long, but it, but it is right. When you look at the, the, the time that Bitcoin has kind of been here. Um, 
So I want to jump right in. And hey guys, let me just interrupt this interview real quick just to plug the show sponsor, and that is BlockFi. Now, BlockFi is doing amazing things in the Bitcoin finance space. As a matter of fact, they've cracked some really big news by bringing on the ex-CFTC um, chair, Chris Giancarlo, um, and they are one of the most transparent, most heavily regulated um, companies inside the United States, which gives me a lot of trust um, into what their services are. Now, I've recently did a video talking about how to retire off of Bitcoin. And you can do that by leveraging debt and interest against Bitcoin. And BlockFi is the the number one company in the United States or maybe in the world to go to and use. Um, they are leading the charge. They're paying interest on your Bitcoin if you park it with them, or you can borrow against it. Now, as I broke down in that video, you can borrow against your Bitcoin. And when you take debt against it, it's not taxable. It's not a taxable event. You can use that debt for anything that you want, including to live off of, to leverage up and buy more, or roll it into another asset. Um, you can do something like I've done recently, like sell some real estate, put that money into Bitcoin, now, as that Bitcoin price has risen, I'm able to borrow against it and go back and buy the same real estate or something similar. And I still own the Bitcoin and I also own the new asset as well. Lots of ways you can do this. Um, and BlockFi is the company that I recommend. Down in the description, I have a link that you can click on. If you choose to use that link, you can earn up to $250 in Bitcoin just for using that link. So check out BlockFi now. Let's just start talking about um, kind of the space and talking about the cycles. Um, so it seems like, and I know you've done extensive research and writing on these subjects. And so that's why I love having you on to talk about this kind of stuff. But um, right now, obviously, uh, Bitcoin has, is in this bull market cycle. Um, it's, it's starting to attract a lot of attention right now. Um, but it seems like there, you know, there are these cycles and, and I'm actually working on the big thesis about all different types of cycles, but Bitcoin has these cycles that like seem to operate in four years, uh, based off of having cycles. Um, you want to just explain that for a little bit? Yeah. So for those unfamiliar, those who may be new to Bitcoin, Bitcoin has an issuance curve. So Bitcoin are issued over a certain curve over a very long period of time and Bitcoin will be issued till we hit a 21 million hard cap. That's a big value prop of Bitcoin is that there's a limited 21 million supply. Now, there had to be a certain way to issue those coins until we reached that mark. And what Satoshi uh, came up with was an idea where every four years, the number of newly issued coins per block, every 10 minute approximate block, is reduced by half. And uh, that happens until it's like an asymptotic curve until it hits 21 million at a very far date in the future. Now, when we look at Bitcoin's price, in conjunction with these halvings, so the moment in which that reward is dropped and, or that uh, subsidy, the newly minted coin is dropped in the block reward, we see a corresponding bull run occur uh, a year or two later. Right. And this has occurred three times now. So yep. you could say it's coincidental. You could say it doesn't predict the future, but certainly it means something uh, because we see Bitcoin's boom bust cycle or big bull run and then a drop correspond from the, you got the 2020 2012 hat, 2012 having right. the 2013 bull run, 2016 having 2017 bull run, 2020 having, and now we're in the middle of a bull run. So right. these cycles uh, are kind of like the micro cycles of Bitcoin's economy. Um, and they've largely led a lot of development, uh, volume, users, interest, and we're in the middle of one right now. Yeah. So I love cycles. Like I said, I'm kind of working on this big thesis, pulling a few different cycles. And, and I love them because you can kind of use this historical reference to kind of maybe help predict the future a little bit. You know, Mark Twain says it doesn't repeat, but it rhymes. Um, and so if we look at that now, three halvings is not a lot of data. I mean, it's not conclusive evidence, but it is something, right? It's all we have. Um, 
it looks like um, that we kind of have maybe it peaks out about 18 months after the halving cycle. Um, is that kind of what you've seen through your research? Yeah, I mean, it, it, there's a window of time uh, that it, it typically peaks within, and there the last two cycles have been a certain amount of, uh, you know, they're within a few months of each other or within a few days. Actually, I forget, yeah. I forget how granular it gets. I forget, uh, you know, it also it depends on do you do do you look at the cycle based on the halving to the top of the cycle, or do you look at the bottom, like the bare, mm -hmm. the lowest part of the cycle to the top of the halving? And so I forget which one has which sort of time period. But yes, generally a year and a half. Yeah. year and a half in, we're looking at the peak of the next bull run. I think we, it was yeah. May, 2020 that we had the halving. So a year plus that is May, 2021 Add a, add three to six months. And we're looking at Q3, Q4, 2021. Right. But, um, the, you know, one of the things I really want to dig in with you today is that you wrote, you wrote a paper talking about a super cycle. And so obviously we're having cycles and there's three cycles that we've had so far. Um, but you have this thesis that there's this super cycle. I like, I like that word. It sounds, uh, sounds pretty dramatic. I think a lot of people like that. Um, but I guess, I guess that's kind of uh, sits on a premise that maybe this time is different. I've been saying quite a bit that uh, the world we're going into is not the one we've come out of, right? Uh, the Fed, uh, COVID every, changed everything. But you also kind of agree that maybe, I think per your paper, um, that this time is different. And maybe this cycle is going to be quite a bit different than the last ones. Totally agree. I do think this cycle is different. And uh, what's funny about data is if you wait till you have all the data, then the moment's probably too late. Right. <laughs> so when it comes to investing or when it comes to product decision-making, because I've worked on both product and marketing teams, you have to operate with limited information. That's always the operating environment. You don't have perfect information. So yeah. yes, we've got a couple halvings. We've seen a couple bull runs. Some go, well, we don't, this is, you know, data science wise, this isn't 100% correlated. I'm like, it's the best we've got. Right. And it's pretty good. And certainly there's some qualitative reasons because right. we've got the quantitative side. There's a qualitative reason why um, these cycles occur. Now, is this cycle different than the other cycles? This is where I coined the term super cycle. Right. Um, most people, by the way, and I'm not even sure if you know this, I coined that term in 2019 mm -hmm. during the bear market. Um, I wrote in the Held Report, my weekly newsletter, I wrote in December 2020, a sort of revisiting of the um, of the super cycle theory. Now in 2019, so you were kind of you were back then, and you were kind of project, predict, uh, predicting that we were going to go into that at some point. Okay. Yeah, and so I think that gives it a lot more credence than a lot of people thinking thinking that I made it up during the bull run because it's easy to be bullish in the bull run. Right. This was in the middle of the bear market, where I basically postulated that what if this cycle, what if Bitcoin's micro cycle, this four year boom and bust cycle. What if a boom corresponds with a macro bust, a macro recession, a macro depression? So macro would be like the mainstream financial world. Right. They're typical. They typically have eight to 10 year cycles. You could almost look at this kind of like Ray Dalio's short and long-term debt cycle theory, where he's got these oscillating waves of short-term debt cycles and you've got the long-term one. Yep. This is Bitcoin's equivalent of that. So if you're a Ray Dalio fan, I think you'll find this analogy kind of fun. Yeah. Um, and what I hypothesize is if we have a recession while Bitcoin's in a bull run, that is the make magic moment. And Bitcoin was born in the 2008 financial crisis as an antidote to poor central banking policy. But Bitcoin's existence has been largely a very, very productive uh, bull market. So what happens when people start to question the nature of, of their money and question the nature of their government's control over money? Then Bitcoin's value prop shines the most. And that's what we have now. COVID, I mean, I put, look, COVID was a negative event. I'm not trying to celebrate COVID. Sure. But COVID certainly made people go wake up and go, wait a second, 
I'm not sure if I can trust my government with my money. And it just takes that sort of moment. But this was much more intense than I even hypothesized because I was like, oh, that'll just be a normal recession. We're due for one in 2020, 2021. But then COVID hit and that's like a, a mega, mega bearish event. But that bearish event brings in focus why Bitcoin is valuable. You don't have to trust your government. You don't have to trust banks. Mm-hmm. And that's where the super cycle theory, I think, has largely gotten a huge check mark from that event. Right. Um, and there's other check marks too that we can dig into later. But yeah. that one on a micro macro cycle, I think like we're, we're having a Bitcoin bull run in the midst of a moment when everyone comes to realize the value of Bitcoin. I don't think we're going to see a normal price movement of we can go into some numbers, some of the predictions that, um, you know, I would say an aggregate analyst are, are predicting. Yeah. Yeah. I want to dig into that. We'll, we'll, we're going to leave that towards the end, make sure everybody sticks around and listen to kind of those numbers of where we where, where maybe we're going. Um, but I guess to kind of dig into what you said, obviously that makes sense, right? Uh, people are all of a sudden starting to go, what the heck is happening to our money? 35% of the money supply was created in the last 12 months, all those things. Um, so I think, I think there was that distrust. That was like the psychological factor, but then we did have six, $7 trillion dumped into the markets. So we have, we have that as well. So I think it's kind of, uh, it's getting it from both sides, right? A, a rush of liquidity into the markets. Um, and the other thing I think is that um, what we're seeing across all markets, and, and, I, and it's really the base of economics, is people rushing to scarce assets. And so we're seeing, you know, the best beachfront or lakefront property going up way more than other properties, for example. And so Bitcoin might be the most scarce financial asset. And maybe that's one reason why it's going up more than others. Certainly. Uh, Bitcoin's moment to shine as a 21 million fixed supply comes into focus in this sort of moment. Uh, we're seeing other scarce assets like gold and real estate start to go up in price too. Right. I'm going to Austin this weekend to visit some friends and I've noticed uh, that the and apartment- may not come back? <laughs> I'm, I'm moving out there in a month and a half. Oh, months. you are? Okay. Yeah, so it's, it's already set in stone. We're just figuring out where we want to live. Uh, I did a scouting mission before in terms of checking out different neighborhoods, but now it's time to go put some ink on paper and make it happen. So yeah. I, I'm thrilled. I, I'm a Texan. So I've been out in California in San Francisco for eight years working in tech. Yeah. Still going to work in tech, but it's time to come home. Um, I, yeah. I uh, tax wise and uh, personal belief wise, I just feel like I'm more comfortable out there. Yeah. Um, when it comes to, you know, the, what we're seeing is, is, you know, when we look at inflation numbers and we look at inflation calculations like CPI, they don't include a lot of metrics or a lot of prices that are inherent to living. Sure. They, they exclude some of these costs, which is ridiculous. Like for example, they only include rent, but they don't include the, the rise in, in uh, average home price. Right. So we're seeing asset bubbles occur in equities and in real estate where it's very symptomatic of all of this money printing. And, and by the way, I looked this metric up recently. It's $25 trillion that have been printed globally during wow. COVID by governments, 25 trillion yeah. and Bitcoin's only at a trillion dollar market cap. Yeah. You know, th- this, these are the sort of moments when you just realize the size and the enormity of the value prop for Bitcoin, the, the, the total addressable market of what Bitcoin can evolve and grow into in terms of size. Yeah, that's a great point. You know, I, I talk so much about um, how much, how many dollars have been created by the Fed, uh, but Bitcoin's a, a global reserve asset. And so really you need to look at the total amount of global dollars. And so uh, that's, a, that's a great point you bring up. Now, um, you did mention that uh, Bitcoin was created, you know, in the 2009, kind of as a response to the 2008 crash. Um, and so 
it's it's you know pretty apparent that Bitcoin hasn't really seen a big bear market. And so, you know, there's always the debate between, you know, is it risk on, is it risk off, you know, where does that fit? Um, but I think that, you know, what happened last year in that COVID plunge or whatever you want to call that, it seemed to kind of actually respond like gold did. Um, has done, if we look at gold compared to stocks in like the 2008 crash, um, it, it takes an initial dip, but then immediately rebounds really quickly. And uh, I think we kind of saw that. Does that kind of give you maybe a little bit of taste of what we may expect from that in the future? Yeah, great question. So a lot of folks think, oh, it's a store value asset. It's a uh, risk-off asset. It must perfectly be like have a perfect, right. <laughs> perfect inverse correlation with the markets. Well, nothing perfectly does that. It there's, there's an ebb and flow to how prices move relative to other asset prices. What happened in gold and Bitcoin on March 12th, 2020, that was a liquidity crunch. Mm-hmm. Uh, investors across the world were getting margin called because a lot of the institutional folks go levered to juice the returns. They were getting margin called and they were selling anything they could, even safe haven store value assets, assets like gold and Bitcoin. Yeah. So I think that um, that moment was a good example of a liquidity crunch, not necessarily a lack of confidence in Bitcoin or gold as a global store of value asset. Um, what's kind of cool about Bitcoin is that Bitcoin, as referenced by Jerome Powell, the chairman of the Federal Reserve, he states that Bitcoin is a speculative store of value. Mm-hmm. I think that encapsulates this perfectly. Its inherent properties make it a good long-term risk-off asset. But its price volatility is very much a, a speculation as to its future utility of a store of value asset. But it, what's funny is that the speculative nature of Bitcoin is entirely how we heard about it and how it is gains yeah. adoption. Price goes higher, you hear about it, you talk about it, you buy it, you tell your friends about it, <laughs> and the yeah. loop continues. It's a viral loop. It's essentially yeah. a viral loop baked into Bitcoin. And um, you know, when we look at this from a, uh, how, how does like a money go from zero from a white paper and uh, a group of nerdy dudes who want to talk about crypto? Hey, sorry to interrupt this video just one more time. I'm not running Google ads, so it's actually way less interruption than I normally would have on a video. Um, and that's because it's sponsored by BlockFi. Um, they are opening up the world of Bitcoin and financial products, offering to pay you interest on your Bitcoin. Um, Better than owning a rental property that you have to manage and control and have the risks. You can just earn interest on it or you can leverage against it. Now, I plan to hold my Bitcoin forever and literally never sell my Bitcoin. So how do you do that? Well, if I need money, I don't want to sell that Bitcoin. I'm going to pay tax on it. All right. I'm going to end up with less and I don't have the Bitcoin anymore. So a better way to do it is to borrow against the Bitcoin. So I've put all my money into Bitcoin. If I want to buy a car or I want to buy a house, I can borrow against it at very, very low competitive rates, get my house, get my car, whatever that may be, and get to keep the Bitcoin. I've done a whole video on this. Uh, You can find it. I'll link it down in the description below how to retire off of Bitcoin without paying taxes. And you can do that with BlockFi services. Um, I'll I'll link to the video down below. I'm also going to put a link to BlockFi. If you choose to click on that link to check them out, you can earn up to $250 in free Bitcoin just for using that link. And that's it. Let's go ahead and get back to the interview. How does it go from that to the mainstream? Right. Bitcoin has done this through these speculative cycles. I don't use the word speculative in a negative connotation. It's simply people it is, discovering yeah. discovering Bitcoin, discovering why it's valuable. Some stick around because they realize the value. Some just came in to speculate. Yeah. Um, but yeah, with this, you know, Bitcoin, I think is increasingly being recognized as a goal 2.0. And this was a check mark for the super cycle theory. In yeah. 2019, no one recognized Bitcoin as gold 2.0 other than us. <laughs> right. Other than us, other than our, our group of believers. 
all the institutions though, you've got, you've got investment banks, hedge funds, hedge fund managers who are legends, Tesla, MicroStrategy, they're putting Bitcoin on their balance sheet. These are gigantic check marks for like a super cycle theory. Now, again, I'm not saying it's likely to happen. I'm saying it could happen. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> you know, Bitcoin moves in mysterious ways. Who knows how, what the future holds? I can't predict the future. I'm just describing a, a potential outcome that no one was describing at the time because I think this time might be different. But yeah, I mean, we're seeing every institution across the world say Bitcoin is gold 2.0. I've waited eight years to see this moment. Yeah. This is not like the other cycles. The other cycles where we were considered, Bitcoin is considered a very risky investment that only retail traders get into. No, you've got like giant investment banks going, Oh yeah, Bitcoin's like gold. <laughs> yeah, this is huge. This yeah. is a huge moment. A huge moment for Bitcoin. Yeah, I think um, you know. Obviously, we don't we don't know the future, but uh, looking at cycles and understanding how technology rolls out and understanding all these different things, it gives you different perspectives. And so, um, I I always like to take the, like the macro view because um, I think it's easier to kind of see the future, uh, the long term future, than the short term future. And when you see these actions being taken, as you said, by these institutions, you know where that leads to eventually. Before we get into that, I want to, I do want to talk about um, how the makeup of the people in the space has changed and what that means for the future. Cause I think that really builds into that super cycle. But before we do that, um, ha- having, you know, someone like you that's been in Silicon Valley for this long, um, it's, it's interesting. And I'm curious your perspective on this because you mentioned Jerome Powell calling it like a store of value. I think China came out like last week and said, it's like a store of value. I mean, we're seeing that from these, even Citibank and JP have been coming out and kind of saying these things, but yet we still have all these other people like, uh, uh, you know, whether that's Mark Cuban or we have, uh, you know, seemingly very smart technology driven people. Um, Talib recently came out the same thing and said, it, it's, it's not, a currency. It's not a store value. It's too speculative. And it seems that like they've completely forgotten that technology has to evolve. Like just because it's not something today doesn't mean it's not going to be something in the future. So as a Silicon Valley kind of tech guy, what's your thought on that? Yeah, there's a couple things here. One to address the volatility question where a lot of people are just kind of put off by that. I'm like, how did you think, how did you think any major gigantic valuable company ever got that big? Right. <laughs> it wasn't a nice, perfect linear function from $0 market share to like a $1 market share, $2 market share. No, it was like these ebbs and flows of investor interest and execution. Bitcoin in a similar function uh, does that. You know, with Silicon Valley, though, it's been a little bit disappointing. Silicon Valley tech people inherently don't get Bitcoin. Their first inclination and I, I wrote about this too, because it was a very rare thing. And a bunch of folks agreed with me too, which at first I wrote this and I didn't, re- I was like, man, am I going to put myself out here? And are people going to be like, cool, Dan, that's a nice opinion. A bunch of people in tech who are into Bitcoin came out and they were like, this is exactly how the system works. Yeah. Silicon Valley has two primary uh, functions, two primary players, VCs. So venture capital or people who fund startups and startups. VCs are constantly looking at what's next. Uh, Whatever's hot, they want to pile in on. They don't care. And most of them aren't subject matter experts. They can't be experts in every single sector. So they either outsource that, bring in people, or they just choose a theme. It's a thematic investment into AR, VR, drones, Bitcoin, chatbots, you name it. And what happens is you go deploy capital and the VCs know one out of 100 make it. So they just look for whatever's hot super hot and and they put in capital there. It was one of the most disappointing things to find out ever about Silicon Valley. Venture capitalists are not risk takers, risk takers at all. Hmm. They claim to be, 
but they're not. Yeah. So what happens is they will never go against the grain versus all the other VCs. There's top, there's like a top four VC, couple of VC firms. They choose what's hot. And if they don't choose what's hot, what happens is that the LPs, so the investors in your fund, they go, well, why aren't you talking about this other subject that they're talking about? Right. Why are you investing in something else that's not the common narrative? And it's very counterintuitive because you would expect VCs to be into contrarian investments. That's the whole point, right? Right. You what happens think. is that they're, they're beholden to the LPs still, and the LPs will give them a lot of uh, you know, they'll, they'll give them a lot of shit if they don't get into these like more thematic plays that are endorsed by the hot, hot VCs. There's also a joke, you know, if you get into there's the hot VCs and if you can get in with them, it's kind of like the saying, no one ever got fired for buying an IBM. Well, no one ever got fired for investing alongside A16Z. Right. So same. So that was kind of a big element. And I'll weave this all together into Bitcoin here pretty quick. Uh, so that's a big element that they're not contrarian and that they largely chase narratives and the narratives ebb and flow very quickly. Like, does anyone, <laughs> anyone talk, talk about chatbots? No. Yeah. But remember that whole trend for a while sure. is super hot or AR VR. Yeah. I'm not exactly. wearing an AR headset and I'm a gamer. Like, and I've got a high do disposable. You think, do you think it's yeah. also though, because like um, why the medical industry won't um, embrace CBD, you know, or, uh, you know, cannabis, right? Because they, it's natural. They can't own it. There's no money to be made there. So they want to, they want to create their own version of, uh, you know, a synthetic version of it. They can patent. Is it something maybe like that where, you know, VCs, they can't make any money off Bitcoin. So they want to create the next altcoin kind of a thing. Yeah. That's certainly an element. I think part of this as well is like, um, VCs prescribe the narrative to Bitcoin that like, oh, Bitcoin's good to disrupt PayPal. VCs don't even grok the idea of like disrupting governments. <laughs> I mean, that is, right. that is next level, like next level revolutionary. And how do you make money off that? You know, they can't really go pitch their LPs. Hey, I bought Bitcoin and it is hodled. Right. They need to be an active investor, actively investing in companies. Right. And what's interesting is that hodling Bitcoin will likely outperform any company that you invest in in the crypto space. So, uh, it you certainly know, has. It certainly has. I mean, even Coinbase, I think it's maybe on par, like the best performing startup in crypto. <laughs> I think wow. like if you look at Series A check or Seed check to IPO, Bitcoin still outperforms, which is wild. That like, is amazing. Like, which is nuts. And your risk is far lower with Bitcoin. So yeah, one, they can't make an, they can't make money off of it. Two, the themes have ebbed and flowed and they don't really grok Bitcoin's core. Like how do you make money on like I want to disrupt the government. <laughs> yeah. Like they can't go pitch their LPs like, yo, by the way, Bitcoin's going to disrupt central banking and make all the banks obsolete. Also, it's going to remove power of government to do all these things. These, the LPs would think they're nuts. So they latched on the narratives like cheap PayPal, uh, replacing Visa, replacing MasterCard, which were totally incongruent with why Bitcoin is valuable. And then you also have like dApps, decentralized dApp platforms, but you could own the token. So you do, the, the VCs could eventually take their little cut. Right. Right. So the ebbs and flows of the space, the VCs latch on to whatever narratives are hot. Um, and so Bitcoin's narrative, Bitcoin is old and boring. And that's why I don't like it. And then you've got the operators. So when you're an operator, you constantly have to ship and build. So Kraken is constantly building new apps, new, sorry, <clears throat> new functionality to go execute and compete against Coinbase. If we don't execute, then Coinbase will, and we're going to be left in the dust. So you have to right. constantly iterate. That's tech. That's tech mindset. With money, you don't want to tinker with it all the time. Mm, Bitcoin yeah. needs to stay ossified. It needs to be slow moving and eventually become ossified because that ensures that trust can be built around this open, this open network, this open framework. 
uh, versus a weather app, you need to keep pushing a new update to it to make sure that people find it relevant and useful. Um, so for money, it's the opposite. You don't want to touch it a lot. And that's yeah. where they, they don't like Bitcoin, but they like Ethereum because Ethereum is constantly tinkered with and tech builders are tinkerers. They want to tinker with everything. They want to tinker with the monetary policy. They want to tinker with like block time. They want to tinker with proof of work versus proof of stake, constantly tinkering and tinkering and tinkering. And the idea that a product could be perfect or a protocol could be perfect is unfathomable. They're like, no way. They're, they're, they're like, that's, that's impossible. There's no way that the first try you got it right. But we are. Well, they don't, you don't, you don't see them going and tinkering with the TCP IP, you know, internet protocol. Um, they're tinkering with all the things that are built on top of that. So maybe that's totally. also an evolution thing. So over time they're going to, okay, we'll accept this protocol and we'll just tinker with what's on top of it. Totally. Exactly that. Bitcoin is like a TCP IP. You don't tinker with that. However, most younger developers weren't even around back when TCP, TCP IP was, was talked about and debated versus other protocols. So, I mean, I mean, actually, I think if you're around then, you're probably pretty old. Like if you were in your 30s and 40s when they were discussing that, right? you might be so old that you're not on social, right? So right. like there's a whole generation of kind of lost context there. Right. Uh, but there's been some really cool folks on in the Bitcoin space who've pulled out old debates and old, uh, I think there was one that was kind of like a joke, like a joke comic book about how many protocols they were thinking of doing. They were thinking of doing protocols for every type of application back then. And instead, they just came up with TCP IP. Um, there's more nuance to this and a lot more to dig in on and a lot of context I'm leaving out. But yeah, essentially, you've got a bunch of like more fr like front end, front end devs who are building, they're building iOS apps and web apps. And they're like, oh, I want to tinker with stuff. You know, yeah. They don't yeah. think about the implications of like the protocol level, which is like, there's a huge responsibility. This isn't your fucking weather app. Like right. if you mess up something, you've got the entire world's financial system built, <laughs> being built on this. This isn't uh it's not going to break and you can just fix it. You know, like if you break it, you might lose trust for forever. And almost no engineers in the world, like very few operate in that premise. Maybe like aircraft, aircraft software engineers, or, you know, they have to think about the crazy uptime to ensure that everything like a plane doesn't crash with people on it. Right. Those type of engineers, are the right ones to think about protocol design. Yeah. Yeah. That's a, that's some good context. Thanks for sharing that. Let's uh, let's pivot into um, back to this, this super cycle. So um, I think, you know, in, in, if you were around in, you know, 2016, 20, 2017, it was like, uh, obviously it was like retail FOMO, all the individuals were coming in and, and that that's interesting in itself, how it was the kind of the first time that retail had come to technology before the, the institutions and funds. Um, but at the same time, we were talking, oh, the institutions are going to come, they're going to come. Um, but now we've seen a completely different type of buyer. And I think that really feeds into what you're calling the super cycle. Absolutely. Yeah. The, the market before was retail. Retail is a individual like Mark and I, who we, we're not, we're not professional. Well, I don't, I don't know if Mark is or not, but you know, we, we don't run hedge funds. Right. Um, and, and so the institutions had largely stayed out of Bitcoin. And in 2017, we're like, the institutions are coming. The herd is coming. It was a little too early. Mm -hmm. Now the herd is here. The herd is storming through the house. We can hear the herd. We can smell the herd. The herd is here. And um, this represents a huge moment for Bitcoin, not just because the institutions, and I'll get to the second part here in a second, it's the institutions bring about uh, large amounts of capital, which get deployed into Bitcoin. They bring around large amounts of stability in terms of infrastructure, but the legitimacy factor, I think a lot of Bitcoiners are underestimating. Look guys, I'm a libertarian. <laughs> I'm a libertarian freedom fighter too. Like Corporations buying Bitcoin is not a bad thing. They can't do anything if they buy Bitcoin. They can't change the protocol. They can't right. change the governance. 
we still control Bitcoin, but they're opting into our free world. This is a great moment. These institutions are opting into a world that we designed of permissionless nature. Um, they're not going to change Bitcoin. It's not possible given how Bitcoin's architected and we are the resilient core and that won't happen. Right. But what the Bitcoiners don't realize is that by institutions buying Bitcoin, now more retail will buy Bitcoin because retail mm -hmm. looks to institutions for legitimacy. Yep. They're not libertarian like us. They don't question the nature of the reality. So when these trusted institutions like banks buy Bitcoin, then they buy. So now we're hitting that moment and that stride in that market. All these institutions are buying Bitcoin and retail goes, wait a second, these institutions are the smart people that I trust. They start to buy Bitcoin. And so that's why this could all feed into a super cycle where we've never had that before. We've had a very small retail segment, a retail segment that was very risk on. They were willing to reject institutional buy-in, reject government buy-in. And now we're starting to get that, which I think increases the legitimacy of Bitcoin in the eyes of the retail trader. Yeah. So the retail trader, I mean, they came in chasing pumps. So, you know, at the end of 2017, their, their friends said, oh, I just turned 5,000 and 20,000. So they jumped in. But as soon as it started going down, they didn't understand why they bought. They just thought they were going to make get rich overnight. As soon as it started going down, they sold. So that not only did it push it up faster, but it also brought it back down faster. That's why the volatility is always the most at the top. But then uh, as you're ex kind of explaining now with these institutional investors, you have like, not Warren Buffett, but like Warren Buffett's own Coca-Cola since like the sixties, like they buy things like forever. And so um, you just have a different makeup of the person there. Um, and so they're not quickly, they understand why they're buying. They're not buying to make 20 grand. And if it autom if it starts dropping, they don't automatically sell out. So I guess that kind of changes that volatility kind of curve or that sharp ratio. Totally. Yeah. Definitely changes the volatility structure. I think um, Bitcoin's still going to be volatile, quite volatile compared to other uh, currencies and other assets for some time. But this certainly changes the, the, the holdler mix, the mix of individuals buying Bitcoin. And I do think most institutions will skew towards a longer hodl period than a retail trader. Retail traders typically FOMO in because their buddy told them about it. And then right. they're not very convicted. You know, the nor are they managing people's money to where like a, a hedge fund manager or fund can hold on to it for a longer duration and they have an investment thesis. Um, and they're like, sure, we'll wait five years. And the VCs hold their, their investment for five to 10 years. Um, you know, now hedge funds are the same thing as VCs, but in a similar vein, they're con they have a con they have a conviction in this trade, and they're going to go uh, with this investment thesis, and they're going to go do it. Whereas a retail trader wakes up and they had two cups of coffee and they bought Bitcoin, <laughs> and three days later they're drunk with their buddies at the bar and they panic sell. Yeah. You know, so yeah, quite a different dynamic. The other thing I would say is that, you know, kind of like what you were saying about the VCs where nobody wants to be the first guy and then they all want to jump onto the trend. I think that we also see the same thing with the funds and the institutions as well, where nobody wants to be the first guy, but once the first guy buys a little Bitcoin and they outperform, then everybody else has to jump in. And then that yeah. kind of becomes this self-fulfilling prophecy. More people jump in, they outperform, more people jump in, they outperform. Um, and we see that. Now, I know we got to kind of start wrapping this up. So uh, maybe we can just kind of move uh, along. Um where this cycle takes us and kind of what you're thinking now, uh, Michael Saylor said that like all models are broken at this point, um, which, you know, might be true. You're kind of saying the same thing, right? This time is different or whatever. Um, we've heard, you know, Kathy Wood from ARC said that she, she thinks that S&P 500 companies should put 10% of their treasury in it. And if they did yeah. that, it puts it to $500,000 a coin. Seems pretty logical. Uh, Michael Saylor, you know, sees it going to three hundred trillion, and and there's there's reasoning behind that. But in this cycle, kind of what are you what are you thinking or seeing? Yeah, so I mean, if we talk to if we look at historical cycles and project the future, we would see between a hundred and three three hundred thousand dollars of Bitcoin. This is also what a lot of analysts are predicting based on on chain data, 
et cetera. Typically, if everyone's guessing the same thing, it's probably not going to be that. That's probably right. not what's going to happen. Yeah. Um, so that's that's kind of, I would define as like the classic outcome here. The super cycle outcome would be anything above like 300,000 up to like a million. I th- Well, there's no limit to it, but I think anything past a million would be insane. Um, yeah. Even people think about crazy to even say a million or half a million. But I think anything around there, like the half a million to a million dollar range would be in like super cycle territory. Um, I'd say like entering that is a cycle that was predicted to be much smaller, but was bigger than expected, or it could be a normal cycle and there's no bear market or a limited bear market. So it goes to $250,000 Bitcoin and only drops to 200,000 and stays flat till the next bull run. Right. Something like that, you know, something that's very atypical. So basically does it break the pattern? Does it break the mold? I think we've got all the elements that show that this time is different. We'll see what happens. I'm happy either way. Uh, Bitcoin doesn't change either way. Bitcoin doesn't fail or succeed. Bitcoin would even succeed in these lower bound scenarios of 100,000 to 300,000. Right. Super cycle is just what I think could happen if the whole world wakes up to Bitcoin at the same time. And certainly the price isn't going to be the same. It should be much higher than what we expect or have a less intense bear market. Yeah. And, and as you said, all the, the catalyst is there. We have, you know, the, the pandemic and, un, and unlimited money printing. Um, we have this younger generation. Uh, if you look at some cycles like the fourth turning, we have rapid change is going to be happening in this decade. Um, you know, all these things are kind of lining up, so it could happen. So um, I know we got to wrap it up, but uh, you left us with a lot of thought. So hopefully everybody enjoys that. Um, anything you want to say, closing it out? Well, Mark, thanks for having me on. Really appreciate it. Um, if you want to follow me, check out my Twitter account at Dan Held. That's where I post all my thoughts. Um, Yeah, but thanks for having me, Mark. Yeah, we'll go ahead and link to your Twitter and uh, your newsletter down below for everybody. And with that, we'll wrap it up. Thanks so much, Dan. Cheers.